0: Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at sdneighbors.church. So we're reading out of John 19. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats. Thank you, Kim. Homestretch Church in this atonement theory series that we've been in since the beginning of 2022. We're going to be wrapping it up. Next week, my dear friend David Wade is going to be here speaking on Palm Sunday. He's just an incredible human. We're going to be getting to know a lot more of him. He's one of the pastors at Park Hill, does some stuff for them. He's going to be doing some stuff for us. He's an incredible human. And then the following week is Easter and Easter baptisms, and then one more teaching on the cruciform life out of atonement theory, and then we are off to the book of Philippians for a series entitled Joy. Joy, the book of Philippians. Pure and simple for the rest of the summer, Joy, the book of Philippians. Would you join me in just getting present to the text and getting present to the teaching with a deep breath into your belly and a slow release. When we breathe, remember, we're just getting present to what is. Our babies, our lives, the goodness of God, his presence, another deep breath. All of the running around that we do in our heads. We live so far outside of these bodies. We're living in the past. We're living in the future. Worried and anxious. Regretful. Remorseful. But there's this present moment here in this room. Together. Today. To be one with our Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. To be one with each other. To not miss any word he may speak to us. And I would invite you with one more deep breath. Make it the intention of your heart today to receive Allow yourself to be malleable like clay in the potter's hands. As the songs are sung, as the teaching go forth, as we remember around the communion table, let your souls be shaped by a good and wise sculptor, by one who is making you so beautiful, so profound. Make the intention of your heart, the posture of your being in this moment with one final deep breath to trust and receive, and be still, and be known, and be loved, and be victorious in the grace that is our God and his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So late Western modernity, late Western modernity, that is where we find ourselves. Sociologists, anthropologists, they give different terms to different epochs of human history, There was modernity, there were agrarian societies, there were industrial societies. There was modernity and then pre-modernity, or pre-maternity and then modernity, excuse me. And now we find ourselves here in 2022 in what sociologists and anthropologists call late Western modernity. Not just the West Coast of the United States, Western thought, rooted in the Greeks and the philosophers, Socrates and the likes. Late Western modernity. And late Western modernity has created a mind frame, a way of viewing the world, a way in which we see and interpret reality. And it has been overwhelmingly effective in diminishing, if not completely erasing in some sectors of society, the possibility that this morning there may be forces outside of our five physical senses affecting things in our world and our personal lives, For you nerds, philosophers like Charles Taylor, they have coined terms like the eminent frame and exclusive humanism to describe the way that we late Western moderns view and interpret the world. Eminent frame. This is the idea that there is nothing transcendent out there. There is only what is eminent in front of us. In other words, there is only what is here, what is now, what is measurable, what is touchable, what is testable. Nothing else exists. It's all eminent in our frame of thinking. Tracking class? Good. We have, therefore, divorced soul from spirit, spirit from body, making us exclusively human, Taylor says. This means that now in the physical body and this concoction called the chemicals in our brain, we conjure up morality. We derive our sense of authority in what we do in and of ourselves. And all reality, so goes the eminent frame, the modern way of thinking. All reality ceases with the death of our human bodies. So goes the story. We are accidental animals, the byproduct of billions upon billions of randomized mutations in which there is no meaning, no end, no goal, no purpose. And secularism, as it's often called, the erosion of traditions and values and spiritual practices within a society, secularism has produced a society of mockers and scorners who laugh at silly and superstitious ideas pertaining to these invisible powers, Whereas the ancients might have diagnosed a human acting strangely, someone acting out of sorts, they might say, oh, this poor soul has been moonstruck, believing that the power guiding the lunar body through their night sky, the moon, would create lunacy in these unfortunate souls, transforming them into a lunatic, right? And so elaborate rituals would be used to bridge the gap between this world and the other in the hopes of setting the afflicted one free. Today, we call it schizophrenia, and we, prescri- we prescribe medications, and we would never imagine a connection between the moon, lunar powers, and the disruption of brain neural chemistry. Peoples of antiquity believed that dictators attacked other societies by divine fiat, by divine command. In fact, most of those rulers from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to the Caesars of Rome, they claimed to be the physical embodiment of spiritual entities from non-human realms. Today, we moderns cannot get our heads around why someone would bomb maternity wards in the name of Mother Russia. We try to chalk talk it up to geopolitics gone awry, completely oblivious to the fact that there might be malevolent otherworldly forces driving imperialism and the atrocities of war. Now, don't get me wrong. There is so much to be celebrated in the late modern West's medical and psychological and social and technological discoveries and developments. So much. I would not want to live where I would be diagnosed as moonstruck if I was suffering from schizophrenia. Let's be honest about that. We do indeed today have medications and FMRI brain imaging to help the schizophrenic. We do indeed today have diplomatic efforts and coalitions of geopolitical sanity that sanction and stand against invaders gone awry. But, friends, this total ignorance of the spiritual realm that is hoisted upon us has left our souls and our minds and our hearts and our bodies wanting, lacking, University of Maine sociologist of religion, Kyriakas, he's Greek, I cannot pronounce his name to save my life, Markides, I've been reading a lot of him lately, he illustrates this well. Like many, Markides had departed from the religion of his youth, all through the persuasive powers of academia and the professors of materialism, science is real, placards on their yards. <laughs> Yet something was missing from Markides' life. Too many questions were left unanswered by the claims of modernity. And so through a series of events culminating in the study of profoundly mystical practices of the monks in Mount Athos, this monastery on the edge of this sequestered peninsula in Greece, Markides found himself renewed and recommitting himself to the Eastern Orthodox faith of his youth. In describing his journey back into a spiritual worldview, Mark writes this, It increasingly became clear to me that the secular assumptions about reality, dominant during my university training, were in fact a grand illusion a materialist superstition that had kept Western thought stranded and imprisoned for the last 300 years. He's referring there to the Enlightenment and the scientific awakenings that have brought us FRMIs and schizophrenic medications. He goes on and he says it was destructive superstition that led sensitive Western intellectuals by the droves into existential despair and in some cases even to suicide and madness. Think Sater, think Nietzsche. The realization of the phoniness of scientific materialism had a tremendously liberating effect on my mind. Now hear this. Markides had an awakening. And because Markides and every other human, including you and I on this planet, we are actually hardwired to interact with spiritual realities, strict materialism is always going to fall short of answering all of our questions. To realize, as Mark did, that the late modern West's purely naturalistic worldview is in fact a grand illusion that's not only liberating for you and I, but it is an absolute necessity for followers of Jesus. As apprentices of Jesus, the scriptures that formed his worldview and understanding of reality form our worldview and our understanding of reality. This library of books, laws and commands, stories, poems, prophecies, proverbs, this library of scriptural and sacred texts, they are unapologetic and they are crystal clear in their declaration that what you and I see in the physical world is indeed not all there is. The Bible actually describes our cosmos as porous. It is porous. Our world is a world where there is interaction and activity, interplay and interference between the physical and the spiritual realm, between heaven and earth, to use the language of the Hebrew sages. We see this interplay between heaven and earth over and over and over on every page of the scriptures, starting on page one, a talking snake, which means it was probably more than your average garden snake. (laughs) disrupts and destroys humanity's original purpose, casting them from God's presence. We see in the book of Job, the devil unleashes his wrath on a righteous man. And within a week, he loses all of his family, health and wealth, not by mistakes made, but by this malevolent force outside of his able to see. King Saul becomes a murderous maniac under the influence of an unseen spirit. Demons, we are told, plant lying words in the mouths of the council of King Ahab, enticing him to invade another country. Individuals possessed by the power of a dark world live in cemeteries, cutting themselves in the gospels, unable, we're told, to even be restrained by the strongest of chains. A woman spends her days bent over at the waist, not by fused vertebrae, unable to stand straight due to an invisible oppression that was manifesting in her body physically. Men like Daniel pray, and this angelic battle breaks out in the unseen realms between an archangel named Michael and this evil being simply called the Prince of Persia, delaying the answers to Daniel's prayers by three weeks. These and so many other stories on every page of scripture. They highlight that this morning, there is in fact malevolent evil forces at work in humans and in our societies, intentionally seeking to destroy God's creation, especially us. And so, hear this, dear church, the modern, the late Western modern Christian actually sits in his or her world as the most equipped and capable communicator of reality. We're not blind. We take what Pitreum Sorokin, he was the founder of Harvard Sociology Department in the 30s, very controversial figure, but he developed what he called an integralist approach to knowing and explaining reality, an integrated approach Look at this, the integralist framework of knowing truth and reality. This is from a secular social scientist, but I think it lands exactly where the modern Christian must see the world. We see through the eye of the senses. That's science, what we can measure, test, retest, measure again. We don't abandon science. The eye of reason, we use philosophy and rationality and logic and mathematics to discern the world and to send people to the moon and beyond. We do all these things with great joy, And we see the world, friends, through the eye of what Portiguin called contemplation. These spiritual practices that open and attune our spiritual faculties to what is happening in these spaces. So for you and I today, yeah, as you drive past the yard placard or you read on the bumper sticker, science is real, you're not surprised by that. You're not offended by that. You're not worried about that. Yes, science is real. Science and spirit are necessary integrated explanations of various phenomena in this world, saints. You and I, we do not abandon rational thought. We balance it with surrender to mystery. We embrace both material and mystical as reality. Now, this means that we don't attribute every bump in the night to demonic manifestation. Sometimes it's just the cat. But the Christian does not ignore the fact that sometimes the bumps in the night are not the cat. We don't start looking for a demon under every rock. And we certainly do not attribute our bad attitudes to a spirit of grumpiness. Sometimes we just need a burrito and a nap. But the Christian is also discerning and aware that there are these metaphysical liars and deceivers infiltrating our human psychology and wreaking havoc. I am increasingly convinced that there is a neglected spiritual component to the vice grip Satan has on our society manifested in this unprecedented, statistically measured depression, loneliness, angst, and anxiety. What if we aren't gaining ground on those things because we are neglecting the fact that there is some satanic force behind it? Not all of it. We have FRMIs, we have schizophrenic medication, we have science, we have rationality, but we also have the spiritual prayer of process. Are there forces working against me that I can't see? So, we, the community called the church, you and I, we live as an interface between these two worlds. How's that for a responsibility? We exist as what St. Paul called the new humanity. We actually are, in this moment, a thin space between heaven and earth. And so without arrogance and with great humility, you and I bear a mantle of responsibility to guide our fellow humans back into this integrated reality. When you and I tomorrow morning begin to see our homes and our classrooms and our workplace environments through this porous cosmic lens, it is transformative in the way that we see. This is a way of discerning and participating in God's actions in the world as ambassadors and representatives of what is really real. This, friends, is where it gets spicy. As has already been said some of these forces are in direct opposition to you and to God and to humanity. As you and I sit here in our comfortable little Ikea chairs in mid-city San Diego, there is a cosmic conflict at play all around us. Heavenly and hellish beings are warring against each other. This is a primary plotline of the biblical story. Cosmic war. Cosmic war. When Adam and Eve chose to define good and evil for themselves, that's the, the, the taking of the fruit. On the counsel of the snake, that was most likely more than your average garden snake. We handed our authority over to the enemy. That's what happened there. This is what the sages were telling us. Somehow, someway, when we were deceived to believe that we could be our own gods, we handed authority over to this malevolent being, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, Leviathan, behemoth, chaos, accuser. We gave God's kingdom to Satan and human history is now this long and horrific story of the damage that that being and his forces have wrought in this world through us. And so the story of the Bible is the story of God's invasion into occupied territory. It is the story of God coming to take back the ground that is rightfully his. It is the story of God coming to liberate enslaved humanity from our bondage to not only sin, but to Satan and his forces. And so now we arrive at our actual teaching. I've literally taken this lengthy introduction because... For us to understand the cross and the fullness of the cross, we have to understand this cosmic war. We have to see through this porous cosmic reality to realize what the cross accomplished for us. So after 15 minutes now of big picture stuff, we come to our final theme in our, in our series on atonement theory. Atonement and victory. Atonement and victory. When we ask, what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus? When this peasant stonemason died 2,000 years ago, capitally punished at the hands of one of the most powerful empires that's ever existed, hung naked, bruised, and beaten, what happened in this porous cosmos in that moment? And the people of God proclaim, in that moment, at his death, Jesus conquered every spiritual enemy of himself, every enemy of you and I, In the moment of death on the cross, Jesus gained eternal victory in this cosmic war. He is now the victor. He is our, as the Latins called it, Christus victor. Christus victor. Christ as our champion, as our victor, this has been the predominantly held theme in atonement theory for most of Christian history. When the church has asked throughout the millennia, what happened when Jesus died? The church responds throughout the last 2,000 years, he conquered Satan, he conquered the enemies, he won this cosmic victory. And so this cosmic warfare imagery and the victory of Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, it undergirds and permeates every other aspect that we've been studying in this series on atonement theory. Jesus conquered the enemy and delivered humanity by being our substitute as our representative and the sacrifice in our place. He destroyed sin, death, and Satan. And all these things, Paul actually called these things. Sin, he called a power. Death, he called a power. Satan, he called a power. And Jesus destroyed them all through his death and resurrection. So again, from our readings that Kim read for us this morning, Paul understood... As a Jewish rabbi, he translated all the Old Testament into this moment when Jesus died as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. But he also understood that when Jesus said, Tetelestai, from the cross, it's the Greek for it is finished. This idea of it is done, and what is done is ongoing forever from here on out and will never end ever again. Tetelestai, it is finished. When Jesus cried, it is finished, and gave up his spirit and bowed his head, the enemy lost. This is what the New Testament authors are teaching us. In this unexpected and unimaginable move, rather than the king crushing the enemy, he allowed himself to take the full force of the enemy's plots and plans and murderous venom all the way into his being. And this was the inauguration of victory culminating in the resurrection. And so in explaining to the Colossian church, Paul used this triumphant, conquering language around the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll read it again, Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A few thoughts here. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities for you today. The powers and authorities in Paul's mind, as I've already said, are multi-layered, So there's this physical level for Paul where he considers sin and death as these actual, he almost describes them as like personal entities, like thinking beings. You could almost think he's talking about somebody named sin, talking about some thoughtful, purposeful force named death when you read Paul carefully. He considered these powers on the earthly horizontal perspective, the powers that were destroying humanity. But then at the spiritual level, Paul saw these evil forces behind sin and death, Satan in particular. And there at the cross, he tells the Colossians, Jesus stripped these powers of sin and these powers of death and Satan by absorbing themselves into him on the cross. God made him, Second Corinthians tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This mystery that we talked about last week, Jesus became our sin. We died with him. Our sin died in him and with him on the cross. The cost of our sin being death, the wages of our sin were paid on the cross. The power of sin was taken into Jesus' body, delivering us from its bondage. And so not only was sin disarmed in that moment and conquered by Jesus' death, but death itself was destroyed. Now we're down to the guts of why we even do this every Sunday. Now we're into the guts of why we call ourselves Christians. It's because when we die, we don't really die. That's good news. Do you Christians remember that? (laughs) Like death is no longer a problem for us. That's kind of a big deal. That's kind of a really big deal. Death is not a big deal for us. We, with our worries and our angst and our overwhelm, if we could get back to the kernel of Christianity... And we could cry out with Paul this shout of victory where he declared that Isaiah and Hosea's ancient, like thousands of year old promises were now fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. Paul would tell the Corinthians and he would tell you and I this morning as Christians, stand up, resist, fight. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. you got nothing to worry about, even if you die. Death's sting is sin conquered by the cursed Christ on the cross. And the power of sin is the law, stripped of its power as Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly and paid our penalty on the cross. And here is this most important emphasis in this kind of cosmic warfare, stripping of the powers. God is not the cause of our deaths. Christians, death is not normal. Death is not beautiful. Death is not some wonderful passageway into the next life. Death is an abnormality in God's cosmos. Death is an enemy. Death is a power that has been conquered by Jesus through the cross. And the power of death, we are told by the New Testament authors, is held by Satan himself. When we handed our authority over to Satan, he was given the power of death over our physical bodies. The author of Hebrews said this, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I'm convinced there's two things driving every single one of us in our fallen state. Envy, just be honest with yourselves, and the fear of death. Almost every decision we make is either driven by envy Can I build my identity and have a sense of value in comparison to somebody else? Or a fear of death. Do I have any meaning? What's going on in this world with my life? And so we have been delivered from this satanic power of death. Jesus is our Christus victor, our victorious champion. Having stripped all the powers and conquered the kingdom of darkness, they have no authority over us anymore. This authority that we handed to the snake in the garden has been restored to the second Adam, as Paul calls him, to Jesus himself. And Jesus now says to the church, I bestow this authority back to you, my new garden people, my new recreated Warrior children. How's that? At our staff retreat, I had an image of one of our staff. And she's the softest, kindest, most gentle person you'll ever meet. And in this image, I had this image of her covered in war paint. Covered in war paint. Just like raging against the enemies of this world. We are children of the kingdom of light. And now we are warriors in the midst of this cosmic war and this cosmic reality. But, friends, for you and I... Our victory is certain. Your victory, my victory, it's final, it's forever. So let's close this teaching this morning and come to communion with just a couple questions that I think are being begged. Number one, why is there still such a fight? (laughs) 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, why is there still such a raging battle? Why are people still bombing maternity wards? Why am I still crippled by these thoughts that I can't rid myself of? And the reality is we exist in what theologians call an already not yet interim time until heaven fully invades earth. There is this space between the inauguration of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven when Jesus dies and resurrects To the fullness of that kingdom comes where Habakkuk says, as the waters cover the sea, how much water covers the sea? The water is sea, sea is water. The glory of the Lord will be known throughout the earth. There's this interim space. There's this, at this point, 2,000-year interim space. The cross was the decisive victory over Satan, but this war now continues on in this interim space, and we, the church, have been commissioned by God to go and bring that victory into the world. The psalmist actually thanked God, saying, Praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So much of the war that we are still in is our father saying, I want to train you because you're going to judge angels one day, Paul tells us. Did you guys know that? You're being trained how to be these eternal creatures, how to rule as Jesus rules. Thank you, Father, for training our hands to war. God is still intent on partnering with you tomorrow morning to accomplish his will in this worship of him and in this war against him. He is still intent on partnering with you in your classroom, in your family, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your friendships. And so the call, the commission is to continue to fight the battle. Knowing that tomorrow morning, when we get up to go and fight this battle in this cosmic warfare in this porous cosmos and this reality, the victory is already ours. We're just stomping in, bringing ground, gaining ground with this victory in the world. So then how do we war? Second question, how do we war? Four ways in which we war this morning for all of you Takers. Number one, we see through his authority and victory. We see through it. The first foot forward in this war is to actually begin to see this cosmic reality and to see the world in the way that Jesus saw the world, to look through his eyes and see this interplay and this interference between the heavens and the earth. In other words, tomorrow morning when you go to school, when you go to work, you're not oblivious to these forces. You got kind of a suspecting eye. What's going on here behind the scenes? What may actually be happening here? Because I've been commissioned as a warrior child, as a soldier to go in and serve the king in this place. So we're not ignoring the possibilities of influence from another realm in all sorts of situations. As we walk into our workplaces, the conquering king has already gone before us. He has already given us the victory, and he intends through you tomorrow morning to take that ground back. Now, this requires balance. As I said, sometimes the bump in the night is just the cat, and sometimes it's not the cat. Seeing the world through this kind of porous lens requires both physical and spiritual acknowledgments and awareness, heavenly and earthly forces. We walk into our workplace tomorrow saying all of these things are factored into our discernment process, our decision-making process, our prayer process. We integrate all the ways of viewing reality as late modern Western Christians, and we walk in with our war paint on... Saying science will show us much. Rationality and mathematics will teach us much. And I'm gonna be praying my guts out all day long in this workplace. If we are true to the biblical reality... Sometimes Satan is involved. Sometimes it's just somebody's sin. Sometimes it's chemical imbalances. Sometimes it's a demon. Sometimes it's a narcissistic leader being a narcissist. And sometimes there's demonic behavior behind that leader's behavior. And if we are going to be true to the biblical reality and take ground tomorrow, most of the time, it's this mysterious impossible to divide out perfectly, mysterious blending of all of these factors. And so to stay in balance, we're careful not to give Satan and his demons too much attention. Your boss just may be a jerk, not possessed, despite what you think. (laughs) When we give demons and Satan too much attention, then we can kind of lean over and fall off the tightrope because then that begins to lead to fearfulness and overestimation of Satan's power. Sometimes we can get intrigued, this fascination with evil or even kind kind of becomes like satanic worship. Unbeknownst to us, we're just so focused on Satan's power and we're attributing too much to him and his work. But at the same time, back on the tightrope, we're not neglecting to pray against spiritual forces that may be at work. My wife and I have literally sat in coffee shops before just praying. Father, we claim this place. This morning, we claim San Diego in Jesus' name. We claim this church in Jesus' name. We claim the authority that we've been given. So tomorrow, put on your war paint. Go to work. Pray your guts out. And use math because science is real. (laughs) Walk in his authority and victory. Number one, see through his authority and victory. Number two, tomorrow, walk. Today, walk in his authority and victory. What does this mean? This means literally that we walk and we obey. We literally obey. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we walk and we obey. When we are convicted of sin, we walk and we obey. And there's an important piece to this. In our walking in the authority of Jesus and his victory, we are turning from any and all points of entanglement with the enemy. The author of Hebrews would say, put away that besetting sin, that entangling sin so that you can run your race. James said, resist the devil and he will flee from us. I have been considering this a lot lately. I come from a super crazy background. I was led to Jesus through studying an ancient Mayan prophecy by a group of former heroin addicts. And so that is where my background is. I was into some, some, let's just call it strange stuff. And there is a necessity for us as believers to resist the enemy with greater intention and effort, because despite late modernity's attempt to put this grand illusion over us that everything is just material and physical, none of us buy it. Even the most ardent atheists, deep, deep, deep in the recesses of their being are like, there is something out there, I just know it. And so Satan is quick to provide a whole buffet of different spiritual ideas, different spiritual practices and beliefs to satisfy that angst that we find deep within our spirit. And so we must be careful about what we are interacting with as Christians in this world. Paul warned his young protege Timothy that there would be teachings in this world. He simply called them the doctrines of demons. I know that's heavy. Paul never pulled a punch with any one of his communities. He said these things that we trifle with in this culture are the doctrines of demons. These are teachings and practices that literally entrap human souls and destroy them. This is so real to me. I had given myself to these things. Alcohol, heavy hallucinogens, I literally found myself in a psych ward because I almost beat up my girlfriend telling her I'd been speaking with the demons of nine. I had lost my mind in my pursuit of some sort of spiritual reality and Satan and his forces had literally raped my soul and left me ragged and undone and incapable of even functioning as a normal human. My mentor, Dr. Bashir's he has these extensive experiences with the demonic and deliverance and warfare in the local church. And he would teach us in his spiritual warfare classes that Christians, now listen, this is, this is Gary. This isn't me just being, you know, a, 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 whatever. This is Gary. Avoid every form of contact with the demonic, including astrology, New Age paraphernalia, tarot cards, psychics, non-biblical rituals, demonic movies, TV shows, video games, music, charms, crystals, seances, OIGs, and many other places where the demonic is present or obvious or subtle. In the porous space that is the cosmos, there are rituals and practices that bring heaven on earth, And there are rituals and practices that are instigated and moved by forces that are not of heaven. This is the world in which we live. No game. This is no game. This is no game. And for those of us that have been entrapped and enslaved and had our minds torn to shreds in those places, I just want want you to hear from the abyss These are not things to trifle with. And beyond that, beyond that, 20 years later, still trying to get my mind some days right and trying to discern what happened to me. Was it just the LSD that wrecked the chemicals in my brain? Or am I still wrestling with all sorts of crazy stuff There is this declaration for the Christian to say, I want to wholly and fully commit myself to the attention of scripture and truth and prayer and community because I am taking ground in this battered land of war. I am taking ground. I am commissioned to go into this world and act as a warrior taking background and delivering every soul from this mirage that is materialism and from this very real demonic entrapment that this society is held in a vice grip by. And so... We see through this cosmic reality. We walk now in this victory and in this authority. And the main place where we win the battle is in prayer. Pray in his authority and victory. Pray in his authority and in his victory. Paul would actually pray for his Ephesian community, the church in Ephesus. And Paul prayed these things a lot in his New Testament letters. He prayed that the church would know, that we would experience and know Jesus' incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, which power are we supposed to know? It's the power that is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And what did that power do? It it seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above, and these are Paul's words for demons and all this stuff that goes on in this world, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so... Tomorrow, we get up and we begin to see, whoa, there's a lot going on in this world. And I'm going to walk in this absolute commitment to my king. I'm going to flee from anything that entangles me in a spiritual realm and in a way that compromises my ability to shoot straight, to aim clear, to do as I've been commissioned to do as a soldier in this cosmic warfare. And I'm going to pray. Church, the call is to pray. For you tomorrow, not to walk in fear, but to walk into your workplaces with this authority. Praying under your breath, in Jesus' name, this is the ground of my king. You have no place here, Satan. You have no place here, demon. Because believers, you and I, we have this authority in this spiritual realm over all evil forces. And so we are to go forth strong and courageous through this authoritative prayer realize that Satan cannot make you do anything other than what he makes you believe you have to do. That's it. He's the great liar. He can convince you that the only way you can exist is as a coward in the corner. Or you can stand up and say, I've been given all authority in the heavens and earth, and I'm going to take this place for Jesus. I'm going to take my family for Jesus. I'm going to take my marriage for Jesus. I'm going to take my singleness and my friends for Jesus. I'm going to take my school for Jesus. I'm going to take my workplace for Jesus. I'm going to take this world for Jesus. So we pray and we meditate on scriptures. We allow our minds to be renewed by the word and we war, we war against Satan's lies by prayer and by belief in the truth. Here's a helpful prayer paradigm that Gary gave me back in school for how we might pray tomorrow morning if we think that there's something going on in the, in the, in the nether world beyond what we can see. Pray in this way. Number one, Lord Jesus Christ, as you walk into work tomorrow, I acknowledge that this Name the specific situation or an area of sin or influence. Lord Jesus, and you guys can take a picture of this. I acknowledge that this may be empowered by demons and evil spirits. If it is, I want nothing to do with them. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess in this place that you triumphed over these demons and evil spirits by the power of your cross. That purchased forgiveness for all my sins and by your death, burial, and resurrection have provided my new life in Christ. Number three, we're not looking to name demons. We're not looking to pray against geographic demons. There's nothing of this in the Old Testament or New Testament. It is simply demon, darkness, whatever spiritual force in the name and authority of Jesus. I command you, get away from me now. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you send these demons and evil spirits away from me. Number four, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for hearing and answering my prayer Please reveal to me anything in my life that might give demons and evil spirits opportunity in my life. Please fill me anew with your Holy Spirit so that I will be empowered to live out your life in joyful obedience to you and freedom from sin and harassment. And as we close and we come to communion, we see through this porous lens now, this interface, this intermingling of heaven and earth, We walk in obedience in every way. Maybe the Spirit today is just raising some point of disobedience in your life that has given Satan a foothold. Today, you turn from that. You say, I'm going to turn from this entanglement. I'm going to turn to the cleanliness and the purity and the holiness of Scripture and God and the rituals. Christians have just as many rituals as any pagan does but I'm going to manifest the heavenly rituals in this world. That's baptism, that's communion every week. That's the things that we do that I used to think were so weird and now I see how there are these thinning spaces between heaven and earth. And then we pray. We pray in earnest, we pray out loud, we pray under our breath, we pray in dependence, we pray in victory and the spirit goes before us. And then finally this morning, we remember, we continue to always remember when we get beat down, when the anxiety doesn't release its grip on us, when the narcissistic boss seems fully possessed, when we are watching maternity wards being bombed, we pray, you have beaten this, Father. Bring your heaven to earth. Bring your kingdom to reign. Rule over these ambassadors of Satan. Crush them. Save the soul. We pray for our enemies. The perceived enemies are not flesh and blood, friends. It is the spiritual realm that we pray against, and we pray for deliverance for men like Putin from the hell that he will face should he not repent. And so we remember by communion. Communion is one of those weird rituals. Communion, friends, think about it. We're going to take some bread and some wine, and we're going to drink it. How is that any different than holding a crystal? Don't you see though? It's a tactile reality. We are embodying these things. We are manifesting these things through what we do. And we're told in the New Testament that there are literally angels like on tippy toe watching what we do today. There are good angels, literally on tippy toe, as we take communion and the Holy Spirit falls on us and is within us, and they're like, Whoa, that is insane! God is so good. Look at the ground that that little community in mid-city San Diego took today. I want to see more of that. All of the heavenlies are rejoicing. Next Easter, for those of you that are going to the waters, you literally, there's something so, baptism's my favorite. My face always hurts after baptisms because I can't stop smiling. And I've been told that in some of the pictures of baptizing that I've just got this like death grip on somebody's <laughs> neck and they're, they're all bent over like this. It's war. The enemy's been crushed and now alive. And can I just, as we come to communion this morning, we all just give me eye contact for one second, super uncomfortable and smile, big smile. This, this is the hammer that crushes Satan. When you walk tomorrow into your workplace, I am victorious, and I have prayed for you, and you will be delivered. And your friends are like, and your co-workers are like, Christians. <laughs> this, is, this is the hammer that breaks the vice grip. This, this is the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's joy, your deliverance. It's joy that slays the satanic depression and anxiety that's been crushing you. And it's yours. It's yours today, fully. Practice it. Embody it. I have, I have the grumpiest face. When, I was, when my kids were little, whenever I read and I'm thinking really deep, my eyebrow gets all crunched up. I get like a little snarl in my lip. I'm like, I'm really thinking. And my kids, when they were little, they used to come up to me, and they'd rub the middle of my forehead. And they'd say, Daddy, you've got a meaner demeanor. <laughs> And they'd rub it out, and so these many years, I've been practicing softening my face when I'm reading, when I'm talking to somebody, make gentle eye contact, like, all right, what are we gonna get after? And smiling. I've been walking through my neighborhood, praying over my neighborhood, but I make sure to have this huge, goofy smile on my face the whole time. victory, 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 victory but it's the practice of embodying it that it's weird, I can feel in this spiritual realm stuff shift somebody walks past me they're in South Park you can feel the pain in their life you can literally feel it or for me gosh it's literally the guy on the corner and he's like talking to himself and he's trapped he's like trapped there So you just walk past and you smile and you just stretch out a hand in Jesus' name, be delivered. Yeah, there's chemical imbalance there. And so maybe that deliverance will come about by a social worker seeing him and getting him on just the right meds so that he can get a job and live fully human. But it's the prayer that breaks that open and it's the smile on the face that Satan flees from. So smile, rejoice, you are never going to die. Your minds have been healed and renewed by the word of God. These gifts are all yours now. So stand and resist and fight and war and walk and remember. This city is ours. This city is ours. And so smile. Lord, I knew that this teaching was going to get into my guts. It has been 20 years since I've been talking with psychiatrists and psychologists, trying to figure out what the hallucinogens did to my brain. The paranoia, the voices, the nightmares, the inability to sleep, those years of just sheer agony, sheer agony. And you literally... You literally took my soul from hell. You literally delivered me from these forces. You, like, saved me. The war was won. And that night when I said, Jesus, you are my king, the war was over for me. I, I live forever now. And yet, the invitation is to partner with you and make war, to continue to war. How I pray for these saints of God. How I pray that they wouldn't walk away from a teaching like this. Thinking, Well, that was emotional. Or thinking, oh, that was a bit much. Oh, that was weird. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that humans, we humans, we very spiritual creatures, that we would acknowledge our spirituality and that we would live in Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit today. And as we remember your death and resurrection here in this ritual, this, this rite of communion, the space thins. God, you come and you want to deliver people today. You want to bring breakthrough. You want to turn people's hearts today. You literally want to turn the direction of their life today in a communion moment, in this inbreaking of heaven into our souls. And so we open ourselves. We don't resist. And in this ancient practice carried on by Christians for thousands and thousands of years, we believe and we walk in the truth. And we worship you.